Father God in heaven, we are so uh, mindful of the opportunity that you've given us in this life to be examples to other people, uh, specifically when it comes to our own homes and the opportunity to be parents, to have children, to raise them, and to have that be our first line of evangelism. Uh, Lord, to think that the, the little people that you give to us might become witnesses for you and that we can shepherd them into that experience, that you would use us as, as tools, instruments to, to bring and to deliver the gospel personally to our children. And so, Lord, tonight we want to consider the parent as the encourager and as the evangelist. And as we do, Lord, would you just allow this time to sit well in our hearts uh, to help us use this uh, opportunity and, and these things that we'll discuss uh, to consider other parents around us, uh, Lord, those who we'll interact with and what kind of standard that they're holding uh, for their families and, and maybe even an opportunity to encourage them into a, a right path. So use this uh, evening, use these conversations and, and this discussion, Lord, to further your kingdom and to make us better parents that your glory might be made known in Christ. We pray. Amen. Okay, well, we've been having a parenting conversation going on for about seven sessions now, seven lessons on Sunday nights here. And and the seventh is, uh, is this one tonight. We're going to talk about the biblical parent as the encourager. The biblical parent as the encourager. If we go a little recap and start thinking about some of the things that we've talked about, a lot of this is right there on your page. I've kind of made a synopsis of those uh, previous six sessions right there at the top of your handout. And we've talked about the parenting priority, which we all know is the answer to the question, what's your purpose in life? Why are you here? To glorify God. So that's the same focus that we have in, in biblical parenting. And it's a great thing. To, the aim of your life and the aim of parenting are the same things, to glorify God. We look at the goal of biblical parenting. You can read that on your, on your page there. It says, to be a faithful instrument in God's hands for actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. We've talked about scripture, a lot of scripture. A lot coming from the Proverbs, but particularly from Ephesians 6.4, that we're to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this is the course and the path that we've set over the course of the last seven weeks or so. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3.21. Church history gives us a, a great opportunity to think back on some of the incredible parents that have come and think about uh, Augustine's mom and her faithfulness. And I think about um, the parents of, of so many other, even Timothy, Timothy's grandmother and his mother and, and how they encouraged him, Lois and Eunice, in, in his faith and his walk, sharing the word with him. Sometimes I'm amazed. Are, are you amazed like I am? That in our, in our humanity, often we're too quick to see what's wrong with something rather than what's right with something. I walk into a room and, and often I'm, I'm more quick to notice that a drawer has been left open than that the whole room has been cleaned. And I think to myself when I, when I catch myself doing this, I think, how must this feel to the cleaner of the room? What does it say to them? It says, if you think about it, it says that their efforts are thankless, except that they achieve perfection according to my standard. Is that a reasonable standard? My standard? No. Not unless my standard conforms to a greater standard, the perfect standard. My standard is a, is a burden. My standard is unreasonable. And it heaps up a burden on my kids' shoulders and my wife's and anybody else's that they can't bear. In fact, it's very discouraging. 
my standard, when I only apply my standard and it doesn't match biblically. And this is what Paul's warning is in Colossians, when he's talking to parents, and he says this in Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. The word here, exasperate, it means that you would stir up or provoke a child to anger, that you would arouse them or irritate them. And so the aim here from the outset would be, in a negative sense, to not do this. It's almost as if saying, this is what is your normal pattern. This is what you typically do. And so if we're going to talk about parenting, we first need to cut that off and stop doing that, the thing that's so natural for you, and to turn that away and to do something that is positive, that is helpful. So our conversation about an encourager, the biblical parent as the encourager, begins with this warning, this warning to not exasperate. We, we start here because it's all too often our experience that we are not the encourager, that we are the ones who lay heavier burdens on our children. This is our pattern. Exasperation can happen in two ways. In two ways. One way is by omission. And this is to say, exasperation happens when you are not doing something that needs to be done. And we're going to look at five omissions that lead to exasperation in just a moment. The other way is to exasperate by doing things that you ought not do. We call this sins of commission. Things that you do that you ought not do. And that's going to be those eight points. So five things that you need to do that you're not doing and eight things that you're doing that you ought not do. That's the list on your, on your handout there. So hopefully you can follow along with that with me tonight and we'll walk through this as we're trying to help us head toward becoming parents who are encouraging to our children by not exasperating them. And so really striking that balance. We're not trying to create an environment where we're a parent-centered household. That's not the aim. But if we're a biblically-centered household and we're focusing on raising our children in a biblical household, we're wanting to honor God's righteous standard and move away from this is the way that I want it done to this is the way that God wants it done and I'm the facilitator. I'm the one who's asking. I'm the authority that's asking on behalf of God that we do things this way. So number one, in the five omissions, the first of the five omissions which provoke our children to anger is failing to consistently discipline and instruct. Failing to consistently discipline and instruct. We've been talking about discipline over the course of the last several weeks. Discipline actually, uh, the parent as the disciplinarian, that took up about three weeks worth of conversation. And we talked in, that session, in those sessions about the parent having this incredible opportunity, this chance to release their children from shame, guilt, fear, and anxiety by bringing correction to them in the form of the rod, the rod of correction. Children without discipline are provoked to further bad behavior because they have not encountered an adult who knows and honors the righteous standard of God. You see, parents need to be that person in the child's life that will show them consistently the righteous standard of God. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3. I want you to consider with me what the end of the age is going to look like. And there's a great list in here. The end of the age will be marked with massive parenting failures. This list just speaks to this massive parenting failures. And it's a failure to discipline. It's further marked by a society where the righteous standard of God is gone from conscious thought. Just gone. 
Listen to and consider the effects of losing sight of God's righteous standard and consistently bringing our children to his standard through discipline and instruction. We need to do that. We need to bring our children to the righteous standard of God. But this is a list that really indicates that people have lost sight of God's righteous standard. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 reads this way. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Can you see how these people will have missed the righteous standard of God? They will have no opportunity. They will have had no opportunity to have an adult communicate to them that they are not to travel their own path, but to travel the path of the righteous standard of God. No one stepped in their way and said, you're not doing it right. You're not living life according to God's plan. This list indicates a world gone wrong. I think that's obviously where society is headed today, isn't it? Isn't this what's going on in our streets? These, uh, these kids this last week that uh, were um, planning walkouts from their school to protest gun violence, their eyes are set on so many things that, that their minds shouldn't be, and they're missing the things that they should be set on. We have a need to have righteous rules, and we have a great need to set limits. We need to correct and rebuke and exhort and comfort, and we need to provide a healthy balance in our children's lives of grace and truth. And all those things that I just mentioned are missing from that Second Timothy 3 passage. But we can't just do it for a season. We need to do it consistently over the course of our kids' lives. Our kids need to understand discipline. They need to understand the fear of the Lord. They need to have someone point them to and share the righteous standard of God. And they need to see that this is your way of life, is living by the righteous standard of God. The second point in the sins that we commit by omission, by not doing them, We don't maintain involvement in their lives. Number two is not maintaining involvement in their lives. It's involvement, just being involved with the kids. This happens when parents become so wrapped up in their own lives. We think about parents who have um, hobbies or work that dominate their hourly consumption on a weekly basis. Uh, if If you have a sporting activity, if you have a hobby that takes 10, 15 hours a week. What's going on in the life of your child while you're doing your hobby? What is being missed is the opportunity to make a critical investment. Critical investment. Little people with needs become big people with bigger needs. And if you don't shepherd them early, they're going to have bigger needs and bigger problems. Equip the little people by giving them time by communicating value to them, by spending your life for them. You know the scenario all too well, right? The dad's a hard worker. He makes a lot of money, and the company really needs him. So he's out of the house a lot. He's out a lot. And when he's home, it's only for short periods, early in the morning, late at night. And when he arrives earlier than usual, around 8, he's too tired to play, too tired to read a book, too tired to ask, how was your day? 
because he's certainly far too tired to listen to the answer that's going to come from the child and how long that takes to engage the child. And when he feels guilty, he makes promises. He makes promises to his kids, but these promises get broken because he has to go and study or he has to go to a meeting. He's got an incredible deadline or this project is just so big, it's so important. And then one day, this father is on his deathbed and the room is silent and he thinks to himself, where is everybody? Don't they know that I'm dying? And he's totally missed yet again. He is the one who taught them how to live. We don't want to be that father. Biblical parents like to be with their kids. They like to be with their kids. They see great value in being with their kids, making an investment of them, an investment with eternal implications, an investment that pays massive dividends in this life and the next. Massive dividends. The third omission which provokes our children. Not visibly loving your spouse. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul gives you a chance to introduce your children to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to election and predestination and the sealing of the Spirit. And then he, he gives you a chance to show your kids a powerful prayer, a powerful prayer from, uh, that, that shows the strength and the power of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And you're going to want to share that prayer, and you're going to want to share chapter 1 with your kids of Ephesians. And then you're going to want to share with your kids Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3, the depravity that lives inside of them. And then you're finally going to get to verses 8 through 10. And you're going to share this with your kids. And it says in, in chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result, result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you will walk in them. Don't you desperately want to share that with a child? Don't you desperately want them to trust and know Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? Okay, so how many pages is it in your Bible between this incredible gift of salvation and the call for wives to submit to their husbands and for husbands to love their wives? How many pages? It's chapter 5, right, of Ephesians? How many pages? in your, Is it one page? Is it half a page? Are they on the same page in your Bible, chapter 2 and chapter 5 of Ephesians? They're right next to each other, aren't they, in your Bible? What's my point? You want to share Ephesians 2, right? You want them to know Ephesians 2 and know it well? Okay, so what does it look like if you don't honor Ephesians 5? Why should they trust Ephesians 2? If you don't honor Ephesians 5, why should they trust Ephesians 2? Listen to Ephesians 5.25. It reads plainly, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a command. It's not a conditional statement. It does not include the word if, right? And many people read this like an if. Well, if my spouse is lovely, <laughs> that's not the way that it works. It doesn't work that way. There's no if there. Performance is required of Ephesians chapter 5. Performance is required. You're teaching your kids how you understand and interpret and apply scripture by your actions. You're teaching them hermeneutics by action. 
you're communicating to them the value of God's plan, not just for marriage, but for salvation as well. Your kids are watching you as you argue with your spouse, as you leave differences unresolved with your spouse, when you don't show affection, when you're condescending, and when you lack enthusiasm for your spouse. They're watching. A weak marriage is a major provocation to little people. A weak marriage is a major provocation. It's a notable violation of God's plan and it comes with exasperation for children. Number four on your list, ways in which we provoke children, is not visibly showing love for your child. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Number four, not visibly showing love for your child. 1 Corinthians 13. Not only do the children need to see you loving your spouse, which is effectively loving Christ more than yourself, they need to feel your love as well. They need to feel your your touch and your warmth. Failure to love them will exasperate them. It will provoke them to unnecessary anger. I want you to read the text with me here in, in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and it is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. We love these words, certainly. Do this first and do it often. Love with your words. Give your words to your children. But then we also have to love with our hands. We have to wrap them up in our arms and hug them, hold them, snuggle them on the couch, have them sit in our laps and have them tell us their stories. The aim of the biblical parent is to make love unmistakable to our children. They desire to leave no room for doubt in the child's mind that your love is unequivocal for them. Biblical parents will make it their aim to love their children. But often we miss that mark. We miss it. So it's an omission. The next omission on your list would be, number five, not listening to your child. Not listening to your child. The question would be, are you a safe person to confide in? Are you a trusted confidant? How do you know? What would your kids say? James 1.19 tells us that we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And the biblical parent will go further. Biblical parents will listen long. And more than listening long, they will listen without interrupting. And they'll pay attention in listening to achieve comprehension. And they will offer answers as, to, as the conversation will require. Failure to answer, pay attention, or allow completion of a thought is provocative. It will exasperate a child to not do these things. The marks of a listener must attend us 
when we have time with our kids. So these are the five omissions that we don't do, the things that we don't do that provoke our children, that we have every reason to do all the more. So now we're going to turn and we're going to look at eight ways in the things that we are doing that provoke our kids that we need to move away from. And again, the aim of all of these omissions and commissions of sins that provoke our children is to be encouragers. Because if these things are turned upside down, there is so much encouragement that is pushed at our children. So that's why we focus on these. That's why we're looking at these. So let's look at the first sin of commission. Things that we do that provoke our children. The first would be when we're angry, being an angry person. Just being found angry. Anger feeds hopelessness and despair in our children. Anger is shown in obvious and overt ways by quarreling, the tone of our voice, our mood, our attitude, our disposition. Are we driven by emotions or by principles? Certainly when we don't have self-control. Then there's this other side of anger, which is subtle anger. When subtle anger is engaged by the parent, it looks a little different. It has a, it has a different mood. It has a different um, nuance to it. It looks like this. It's grouchy, irritable. It's different anger depending on the location. You might have the same attitude one day, but you just move into a new location, and all of a sudden you become critical, constantly fault-finding, and full of criticism. Which anger do you have more of? The subtle anger or the overt anger? Do you see how anger in the parent can provoke a child? I mean, that's an obvious one, right? If we can allow circumstances to rule over our behavior, can't they? You see, that just falls right in line. So the angry parent is just just begging for the child to show the same kind of behavior that they're showing. I can do whatever I want based on the circumstance, and I can just be driven by emotions perpetually. It, it obviously creates a double standard and is hypocritical. It's undisciplined and, and it's even passive parenting to remain an angry person. Here's a question for you. Is the angry parent more like a thermostat or a thermometer? A thermometer, that's right. They're more like a thermometer. But what, is, what, do, what do we as biblical parents need to be for our kids? We need to be those who will... Set the temperature of every room that we walk into. That we will control and set the temperature. That we won't be emotionally driven, but that we will be principle driven. Driven by principle. And so we remove the angry person out of us and we don't exasperate our children. The second way, the second thing that we do, the sin of commission, is exaggerating. Number two is exaggerating. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4. Exaggerating is a form of deceit. Exaggerating is lying. Consider these two statements, which sadly are probably produced by parents all over the world multiple times a day. Listen to these two statements. You never do anything right. I've told you a million times. How many exaggerations are in those two sentences? Three. Three exaggerations. Never 
is an exaggeration. Anything is an exaggeration. And millions is clearly an exaggeration. You're in Ephesians 4.29. How do those two comments square with Paul's exhortations in Ephesians 4.29? It says this, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Those two sentences, you never do anything right, and I told you a million times, they don't meet that standard. They're not Ephesians 4.29 worthy. They would not be spoken by a biblical parent. Exaggerations are not gracious, they're not kind, they're not accurate, and they're not needed. Encouraging parents steer far clear, intentionally far clear of exaggerations, and they seek to stay only with the truth. And to the contrary even, they offer words of praise, seeking to find opportunity to say things like, good job, I like that, nice work, I love you and what you've done. So exaggeration has to be something that moves out of the vocabulary of a biblical parent. Number three on your list, in these sins of commission that we're trying to get away from so we don't provoke our children, is living vicariously through them. We've talked about this before a little bit. Turn in your Bibles to James 3.16. James 3.16. Parents that live vicariously through their children often approach the relationship with unrealistic expectations. Often this is a cultural phenomenon. Many might think of several Asian cultures where demands on the children are high because the performance of the kids reflects on the whole of the family. What does the Bible say, though, about expectations? Listen closely to James 3.16. It says this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Can I just suggest to you that living vicariously is bound up in those two words right there, selfish ambition? That's living vicariously. And it will inevitably create disorder and evil in the home. This is not the mind of humility that we see from Christ in Philippians 2. And consider Romans 5.8 when Paul says this, but God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Christ lived sacrificially, not with selfish ambition. Selfish ambition Sacrificial, completely different worlds. Biblical parents, encouraging parents, make every effort to die to self, die to self and live for Christ. Often that means dumping their own man-made expectations and holding consistently biblical standards. Can you imagine the damage that would be done to the heart of a child if your love was conditioned on their performance? No, little Johnny... You only had two goals this game. That's just not good enough. I'm not happy. I'm going to be angry the rest of the day at you. No, little Johnny. No, last week you scored two, and this week you scored three goals, but that just doesn't work. I'm not, I'm not happy. You really had a bad second and third period. I'm going to be angry the rest of the day at you. Can you imagine a whole season like this? And the kid scores ten goals and wins the championship. 
And dad's still not satisfied. This would be devastating. And chances are, just as I mentioned in that last example, if if they're able to meet the one standard the one week, you'll up the standard the next week. You have to move away from your own personal expectations and you can't live vicariously through them. Don't let your child believe for one second that your joy is bound up or tied directly to their personal success in anything. Don't let them think that your joy is bound up in their success. Where should they know your joy comes from? They should know that your joy, that your satisfaction, that your delight is settled and fixed in heaven forever. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. That you have no greater joy than knowing Christ and him crucified. And that anything else that he adds to you is just icing on the cake. But we already have the substance. And the substance is Christ. And that way they're free to live and act how the Lord wants to impact them. And they're not bound and tied up in your living vicariously or your unrighteous, ungodly standards that you put on to them. Let them see that your joy is in Christ alone. The fourth of the sins of commission, which provoke children. Number four is humiliating them. We praise in public. We reprove in private. And never does a biblical parent want to encourage their children, never does a biblical parent wanting to encourage their children need to yell at them. Yelling just doesn't need to happen. What you deem to be humor, they may find gravely insulting. Consider Proverbs 18, 19. It says this in Proverbs 18, 19. Listen, listen to these words. It says this, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. This passage really hit me hard when I was in the Navy and I was the uh, supply officer, one of the three supply officers on the ship. And I'd gone back to my stateroom to, to read and to consider after having a rough dinner because some of the guys at the dinner table were mocking the food that my people were serving. And I thought, I really don't have many friends in this wardroom for these guys to be able to, to joke and say the things that they're, that they're saying. And I thought, this, this is not the place for me. I don't know that I, I really want to be here. And, and then the Lord directed me to Proverbs 18. I just was looking at my, my Bible, and it's, it's highlighted at that spot. From that moment, I put up bars and walls. I did not want to engage with the guys on the ship, particularly in the wardroom anymore, if they were going to speak like that against me. And the, the, the relationship was just separated, it was severed. And I, I just fortified myself in. And I just saw that passage because of what was said. Is that what we want for our children? Do we realize that our words can do that? That we can offend a brother. We, that a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Humiliating your children will cause them to build up massive walls around their heart. With the express purpose of never allowing you entrance. Have you seen the parents who go to social media for discipline? Oh, this has happened many, many, many times. They take a video and post it in an attempt to humiliate their children into obedience. <laughs> you imagine this? Humiliation into obedience? Really? Is that even a possibility? Humiliation does not beget obedience. It breeds disdain, hatred, and rage. Rebellion is the certain outcome of humiliation. Humiliation. Here's another failed approach. 
when you recite back to them something that they said, but you use a really dopey voice and put a really silly look on your face? You know what I mean? Yeah, because you did this with your spouse earlier today and it didn't work. <laughs> this is not helpful, right? This is exaggeration and it's intended to make fun of them. You, you need to speak truth and rebuke in love accurately. Doing so will encourage them to trust you. So we don't humiliate. We don't humiliate children. The fifth of the sins of commission which provoke children is to live in hypocrisy. To live in hypocrisy. Living in hypocrisy will provoke your children. First, the biblical standard for parenting is not perfection. We understand that, right? Like out of the gate, everyone understands. We're not talking about perfection. No one's expecting that. Mistakes will happen, and that is why Christ purchased for us the process of peace. Everybody go through it with me? The process of peace. Confession. Repentance. Forgiveness. Restoration. And obedience. If you do this process, you were just obedient to Christ. Because 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ purchased this for us. So we're not asking for perfection. And so when you fail, you have the process of peace. So you put it into action. But what happens in homes where parents, they don't include as part of the regular operation of the household, confession and repentance? What happens when the parents presume that they are above the need for confession and repentance. What does, that, what does that immediately mean in the heart of the child? The hypocrisy lights are going off, right? Hypocrisy, hypocrisy. You want this from me, but you're unwilling to do it yourself. Don't you want your kids to confess their sins to you and repent and ask for forgiveness and then restore the relationship with you by whatever means that takes and then obey you? Don't you want that from them? But you're unwilling to give that to God not only are you unwilling to give that to God, you're unwilling to... You, you might go to the vertical and do the vertical, but if, you're, if you do the vertical, part of the restoration that God would want if you violated his standard, part of the restoration would be going back to the horizontal and taking care of it on the horizontal level, which means you start over and you go with confession again to the people that you've hurt. So how many parents have hurt kids? All of them. They've all hurt kids. So what should kids necessarily expect from their parents? Confession, repentance, the request for forgiveness. Parents make mistakes and they should rightly confess them. Living hypocritically looks like this. An unwillingness to admit wrong. Destructive pride. Lying, which takes the shape of commitments not kept. And unforgiveness, while at the same time expecting your kids to forgive. All of this destroys trust. It sets an incredibly bad example. It undermines the gospel. It is completely hypocritical for someone who is a Christian parent. Biblical parents who are true encouragers will lead in this way by avoiding hypocrisy. And if ever it shows up in your house, you'll eliminate it. The aim is to create a life that you live that is humble, joyful, and predictable. Humble, joyful, and predictable. That that's what your kids get from you. Humble, joyful, predictable. The sixth sin of commission. 
of commission, which, which provokes children, is changing rules. Number six, changing rules. We have to avoid changing rules. As to the last point that was just made, we need to be predictable. Right? Predictability is, is conditioned on consistency. Therefore, rules, rule changes must come in advance with advance notice. We don't want a, an environment where a, a child is up in arms and, and doesn't know what to do next. Does the milk go on the left refrigerator door or the right refrigerator door? Do I make the bed by 7.30 in the morning or do I have until 8 o'clock? The rule just changed. I, I can't remember which. This would lead to a great source of frustration in anyone, let alone children. What would cause a, a parent to hastily change the rules so frequently? What, what, what would cause a parent to just randomly and hastily change rules? Personal preference driven by selfishness, right? And so selfishness is driven by usually emotions, how I feel, how I feel. So you have emotionally driven parenting and you have principle driven parenting. To be encouraging, biblical parents must remain principally driven. Now, if you're, if you're a principle-driven parent, rule changes are allowed. You can change the rules. That's not a problem. You just don't do it on a whim. You don't do it because your soup was not at the right temperature. You don't do it because the waiter spoke to you in a bad voice. You don't do it because you have an upset stomach. <laughs> you know, we're just not on a whim changing our rules with our kids. You can even forecast and think there's a rule change coming up. I'm going to change the rules. I'm going to do this. And you can in advance lead your kids and shepherd them up toward and through the rule change so that they know why the change is happening. So you don't just spring things on them. We don't do it in haste. We can change rules in a timely manner that doesn't create confusion or frustration. The seventh sin of commission Again, trying to avoid provoking our children is being unjust. Being unjust. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11. And, and at this point, can I just say that one word that I really dislike, that I try to eliminate from my vocabulary and I see it popping up in our culture all the time, is the word fair. I just, I don't find it in the Bible. It has an incredibly subjective human component to it. And it doesn't mean anything in God's economy. Do you want what's fair for Christ? <laughs> is that what he got? Do you want what's fair for you? <laughs> Where, where's this in the Bible? God uses words like just, justice, right, righteousness, true, and truth. Here in Proverbs, you'll see what I mean. Proverbs 11.1, 1, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. God hates injustice, but not injustice on your terms, which is why we get into the using of the word fair, because fair is usually on our terms. But God wants justice on his terms, and he's going to mark injustice according to his righteous standard. Consider these four ways that we can be unjust with our children. The first is when we're playing favorites among our children giving time, attention, and gifts and extras to one child over the other. That's unjust. Some might say it's not fair. No, it's more than not fair. It's unjust. Comparing the child to one another. That's number two. 
comparing the children to one another. You might say to the one, why don't you clean up like your brother? You might say to another, you should learn to speak more kindly like your sister. These are not helpful. In fact, these are hurtful comments. These are, these are not just things to say. They're not right. The third would be failing to praise your children. When the trash is, is taken out on time, we're often more likely to say, it's about time you got it right, in that sarcastic tone. When all that we needed to say was, great job, thank you. The just thing to say, the right thing to say, would be, great job, thank you. So we fail to praise. And the fourth would be failing to reward them. We know that there are times in our kids' lives when they impress us. They go above and beyond our expectations. Yet, do we go above our verbal praise? Do we extend to them a, a true token of gratitude? Failing to reward then becomes unjust. To him who knows what is right to do, and he doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So when you know it's right to reward, and when you know it's right to verbally praise, and you don't do it, you just committed sin. And if you leave that sin hanging there, it's hypocrisy. And it flows all the way down the rest, and it provokes children. The encouraging parent will delight in justice, and will encourage their children tremendously in doing what is right. And I would just say this to you. Don't cheapen justice, which is according to God's standard, by doing what is fair according to human standards. Give your children what is right and what is just. And the eighth in the sins of commission which provoke our children is when we expect perfection. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Perfection is not an option. Excellence, however, excellence is an option. We should teach our children to strive for excellence. But consider excellence for a moment. Does excellence look the same for all people? How could it? We're all made so uniquely, so differently. So excellence is this. Excellence is living up to the unique individual abilities God has given. We must help our children distinguish between excellence and perfection. Look at Matthew, what he says. It was recorded, Jesus having said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 4. And I want you to see what the Pharisees were thinking and what they were doing at this time. Jesus says this about them in verse 4 of chapter 23. The Pharisees, they, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. It's okay if I expect perfection of you, but I deliver something far short of perfection. Immediately, this is hypocrisy. Perfection is a heavy burden on the shoulders of any man and certainly any child. Perfection is not a burden any one of us were meant to bear. And so perfection is not an option. Besides, what is the first thing that you know about a person who expects perfection? What's the first thing you know about them? Hypocrite. <laughs> You're not perfect. How can you make a perfect claim if you yourself are not perfect? They're the immediate hypocrite. Perfectionism has a foul air all around it. It's an air of oppression, negativity, and unrelenting demands. Our homes can't stink with the foul air of perfectionism. We shouldn't let our homes stink with the foul air of perfectionism because our homes need to be a place 
where failure can be allowed to happen so that the gospel can be fully understood and felt. The aim is to have biblical parents be encouragers of their children. And so we've looked at the five ways that we omit things, that we we don't do things that we should do, and the eight ways, the sins of commission, where we do the things that we ought not do. We've, We've looked at the parent as the encourager, the disciplinarian, the teacher. And if we understand all these things, we have the greatest opportunity to meet our highest calling as parents in understanding that all of these things point to the parent as the evangelist. The parent as the evangelist. This is why we do all these things. As you have seen in our other conversation, the aim of parenting is not directly obedience in our children. That's not directly. The aim of parenting, there's a target, there's a specific focus. The aim of parenting is to get your kids to the foot of the cross. The aim of biblical parenting is the gospel. That's why we biblically parent our children. I want you to look at the top of your handout. This is what we desire to show our kids. You see where it says love and limits and wisdom and rules? I'm going to walk through this flow of thought with you real quick. Love is in setting limits. And wisdom is in creating rules and having rules in your household. And so we do those things. We do those things. And in doing those things, it immediately creates a cause and effect scenario. Cast your mind back to the Garden of Eden. You can do anything you want with everything out here. Eat from any tree, but that one tree right there, don't touch it. Right? God's creating a rule for us. What's the, the simplicity of that rule was so great. God was saying, this, is, this whole thing's for you, but you're not like me. So that one thing right there, don't touch that because you're not like me. Rules create opportunity to have cause and effect relationship and that cause and effect relationship can point to the truth. It points to the opportunity for grace and truth through the rod because when they make a choice, when they make a decision, it's going to come with consequences and those consequences are either good or they're bad and if they're bad consequences, we're either going to go with the rod or grace and either way, they're going to learn that God has a righteous standard And they're going to learn that God's righteous standard often comes with wrath, as the Old Testament accounts for, and the state of Israel as a nation, and all the crumbled buildings, and all the stuff that's buried in the dirt in Israel account for. God is just, and he brings wrath. But on the other token, just as God is all wrath and all justice, he is all grace and he is all mercy. And we get the chance to communicate that to our children as well. And so you see in this flow of thought, you create limits and wisdom in rules. You create that to get a cause and effect scenario so that you can present grace and truth so that you can get to a gospel conversation. Because if they never violate a standard in your home, how do they know that they're sinners? If there is no standard of violation, if there's no standard to be violated then they must be perfect in their own eyes. That's a really bad place to leave a child. They need to know that they're sinful. They need to know that there's a law that they have violated, that they have crushed the heart of God with their rebellion against him first. David says, against you and you alone have I sinned, God. They need to be taken there. We need to show them the gospel. And we don't dilute it or water it down. We never omit conversations about sin and atonement and the blood of Christ that was shed for us on the cross. 
all of God's perfections, his justice, his love, his mercy, his wrath, his grace, and his holiness. Heaven forbid that you would get this far only to make your child a moral person. That all the spankings and all the conversations were about making them well-behaved and nice to other people. That is far too short-sighted. That's not what we want. That's not the aim of what we want. Our aim is much higher than that. The gospel must be clear. They must truly see their utter depravity and helpless state if there's any chance for them to need a savior. So don't dilute the language of the Bible nor the stories that it contains. We're not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed of the book that Christ stood on in his ministry. If a watered-down, lightweight gospel is a problem, so too is a gospel of heavy theology without relationship. This would be trusting in biblical facts for salvation without ever connecting truth to sin and sin to depravity and depravity to need so that they understand they need a Savior. Heaven forbid that your child knows all four gospels by heart but never sees the sinfulness of their own heart. Consider the list, this, this list that I'll read to you. I want you to consider this list. I wanted to put it on your pages and I apologize that it's not there. There's, there's two lists here that I'm going to read through, a list A and a list B. These, these lists are, are lists that are put together to help distinguish between a profession of faith and a true conversion. And again, there's no guarantees with this. But it's helpful to, at least on a page, start to see some of these differences. So I'll read these slowly so you can see. List A is what you would expect from both someone who has made a profession and someone who has actually had a conversion experience. Someone who's professing faith and actually converted. This List A. List A is this. You would expect to see visible morality. You would expect to see an increase in intellectual knowledge. You would expect to see from this person religious involvement. And, and certainly they would be active in ministry. They would be convicted of their sin. They would have assurance in one sense or another. And they would have a time where they could look back and say, oh, I made a decision to follow Christ. There's a lot in that of this, the parable of the seeds where the seed lands on a very thin pile of soil and it pops up real quick or the seed that lands amongst the weeds and gets choked out. These are the seven different elements in list A that you would expect to see from someone who makes a, a profession of faith and someone who has a conversion experience. But list B really kicks things up a notch. List B really defines more of what you'd expect from a believer. These behaviors work together to prove, they, they, they neither work together to prove or disprove genuine faith, but this is more what you'd expect from a genuine convert, a true Christian. List B goes like this. Love of God repentance from sin, genuine humility, devotion to God's glory, 
someone who is continual in prayer. They demonstrate selfless love. You see them growing continually in their separation from the world. There's a clear indication that there's spiritual growth. And as our, uh, as our process of peace indicates, with the last one being obedience, they would, you would see in this list obedient living. Biblical parents are most interested in seeing list B become part of their children's lives. List A is good and it's necessary, but it alone does not prove salvation. Also, whose job is it to give our children assurance of their salvation? We need to take care that we don't take the role of the Holy Spirit by anointing our children before He washes and cleanses them with the blood of the Lamb. You know, there's the idea that you know, when you have that first profession of faith from your eight-year-old child that you don't get necessarily super excited about it, as if that moment seals the deal, right? You don't get to determine their salvation, so don't condition your child to look to you for assurance of salvation. Turn them over to the scriptures. Continually point them to the tests of genuine faith found in the scriptures. John 14, 15, 15, 12 to 17, Romans 3, 5 and 8, 1 John chapters 1, 2 and 3, Ephesians 4, Psalm 1. Make them engage the word of God. Show them how much you trust the word of God to be the final authority on all spiritual matters, particularly the matter of their salvation. The biblical parent will be the evangelist for their children. The biblical parent will be the prayer warrior. What do children need you to pray for? They need you to pray for wisdom, for trust in God's providence. They need you to pray for their salvation, that they would grow in the knowledge of God. Pray for their protection, their strength and comfort in trials. Pray for their relationships, that they would find good biblical examples to model. Pray for their future heart for the church of Jesus Christ. There's so much to do as a biblical parent. So much to do. So what's your reward in all this? What do you get out of it? Why would you do this? Why would you undertake this? Number one is your sanctification. You'd undertake it for your sanctification. Ephesians 10 says, 2.10 says, that God has prepared good works from beforehand that you're supposed to walk in. And one of those good works, if you're called to be a parent, is to parent biblically as unto the Lord. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Children serve as mirrors of their parents. How frightening is that thought? <laughs> what you see in them bears a direct resemblance to you. You don't need extreme sports to stretch you. You don't need sports at all. You, you already are being stretched enough by your children. They stretch your understanding of scriptures, your trust in God, your attempts to live a holy life. Children put you on your knees at the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. They're your sanctifiers. God gave them to you to sanctify you, to conform you to the image of Christ, to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And second, you get divine satisfaction. How sweet is it to one day Enter into your rest and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. 
And how nice would it be then to turn and watch behind you as years later that little apple that didn't fall far from the tree enters into heaven and hears those same words from their Savior. Well done, good and faithful servant. To think that you get the opportunity to be there to watch that. It's for those things. It's for those spiritual realities that we labor. We labor long. We lay down our lives to sacrifice for these sweet children that the Lord has given us. Well, that concludes our conversation on the biblical parent. Hopefully it's been edifying to you. Why don't I close us in prayer and then we'll take any questions and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, these are high and mighty things to dwell on. You have given us such treasures in the children that you've allowed us to have. Lord, the opportunity even to have an impact or an influence in any life. You've given us the opportunity to be examples and to model to model what it is to be a Christian in front of this watching world. And Lord, I just pray that the things we're talking about in relation to biblical parenting would not only impact the parents in the room, but all those in the room, because we're all examples. And we all have need to watch the way that we live lives as examples to this watching world. Help us, Father, to do these things according to your righteous standard, that your kingdom will grow, that the elect will be called home, and that your glory would be made known. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in this. We do all these things because our Savior, Jesus Christ, is so glorious, so radiant, and his blood is so precious to save us from our own sin debt that we could not pay. We thank you for Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.